Support for today's show comes from Squarespace. Whether you need a portfolio to showcase your work, a store to sell your products and services, or a blog to share your ideas, Squarespace gives you everything you need to make your next move into a reality. Not to mention, but I'm going to mention, with Squarespace's beautifully designed templates and customizable features, creating a beautiful website is a simple and intuitive process. Simply add and arrange your content with a click of a mouse. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com, and if you enter the offer code so smart, you will get 10% off your first purchase. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 110. Just a note before we get started, the guests in our show today had a poor phone connection, so please forgive the quality of their voices. All right, so how much sleep did you get last night? Well, chances are, if the polls are correct, not nearly enough. In 2008, Research conducted by the National Sleep Foundation found that more than 40% of Americans get less than seven hours of sleep every night. Just a few years later, in 2014, polls found that number had gone up from 40 to 60%. Six out of 10 of us are walking around massively sleep deprived. And the numbers are similar in other countries. Now, experts blame this rise on the blue light that's emitted by the devices that we take to our beds. Those devices, the light that comes out of them and the drama inside of them, that harms our ability to wind down, fall asleep, stay asleep, and get deep sleep. And this is a huge and growing problem because to be a fully functioning human, you need plenty of sleep. Um, so the National Sleep Foundation recommends for 79 hours of sleep for most adults. That's Anna Alkazai. My name is Anna Alkazai, and I am a postdoctoral uh, researcher at the University of Arizona. Dr. Alkazai studies the neurobiology of stressors, and you might be surprised to learn that one of the most common and damaging stressors in our daily lives is that we don't get those precious seven to nine hours of sleep. Nearly half of individuals in the U.S. obtain less than the recommended seven hours per night. Um, and so if we're sort of chronically sleep-restricted, um, that might just have these effects um, overall that, that we might not even be aware of. What are those effects? Well, a meta-analysis of 147 studies across 70 research papers found that in every way a person's cognitive functions can be measured, sleep deprivation significantly dulled them. Attention, detecting stimuli, sorting, processing speed, working memory, short-term memory, long-term memory, intelligence tests, decision-making, reasoning, vocabulary, math, motor skills, verbal fluency, everything. But here's the crazy part. 
People tend to assume that the main effect of sleep deprivation is just drowsiness and that the danger is falling asleep while driving or something like that. But experts say that the real danger is that people who are sleep deprived don't realize they're performing poorly in just about every regard. And worse than that, they think they aren't performing poorly. So they think they're fine and um, on an objective level, performance level, they get worse and worse and worse. That's Monica Hawk of Harvard Medical School. So I'm Monica, Monica Hawk, um, and um, I'm assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. As Hawk explains, you can't trust yourself to know that you are dumber than your normal self because you can't trust your own subjective analysis. The part of you that thinks about and answers those kinds of questions adapts to your new level of dumbness. When you don't get enough sleep, your conscious self eventually just gets used to it. You adapt to the subjective experience that comes with sleep restriction, and it becomes your new normal. You begin to assume you don't need that much sleep. You're one of those special people who only needs four or five or six hours. It's everyone else who needs seven to nine. But research by Hawk and others shows that if you could compare the person you were before sleep deprivation to the person after, you'd find that you've definitely become mm, lesser than. I mean, you cannot just ask someone and say, oh, is that enough sleep? Because they get adapted to even four hours. And since you can't ask people if they're performing poorly, to truly know you need a special kind of test that reveals the biomarkers of sleep deprivation. Many of those are tied to inflammation and other signs of stress. Biomarkers of sleep loss that, you know, you could measure in blood or in urine that really can give an information about if the person is in a sleep-deficient state. Hawk says that this unawareness of our own dulling down can be compared to how alcohol affects the brain. If you've ever been sober around people who are a little tipsy or drunk, it's far more obvious to you than it is to them. And when you are drunk or under some kind of influence, you often think that you're performing better than you would if you were sober. With sleep, as with so much of life, we assume we know ourselves better than we do. And here's the thing. Since we grow used to this state of mind, many of us don't realize that we aren't just sleep-deprived. We're chronically sleep-deprived. Chronic can start at, you know, there's people who have just three nights or a week um, with deficient sleep. But then also, most people, it really goes over decades. Yeah, decades. And Hawk says that she and others now suspect that the damage accumulates. The health effects grow worse over time as you continue to get not enough sleep night after night. And Hawk and Alcazai say that one of the reasons these effects keep getting worse is that you tend to believe you can miss an hour or two a night during the week as long as you make up those hours on the weekends. You tend to think of sleep deprivation as a kind of debt that can be paid back. As long as the books are balanced every week, you're fine. But Hawk's lab tested that very idea, and they found... It was absolutely not true. So, um, and we tried, this is probably one of the first studies where we tried to mimic very common patterns of sleep restriction and recovery. So what we did, um, we had healthy participants 
And we invited them for 25 days in the clinical research center. So they stayed there for 25 days, and we mimicked three weeks of um, restricting sleep during the weekdays. So during the, for five days, they slept only four hours every night, and then they had two nights of recovery sleep during the weekend, so mimicking the weekend catch-up sleep. Two months later, they brought them back in the lab, and they had them sleep for eight hours a night for another three weeks. So in the end, they had two sets of results, people who stayed up on weeknights and tried to catch up on the weekends, and people who slept eight hours a night every night. And what they found was that the people who slept well every night, well, they had normal levels of stress hormones and inflammation. The people who caught up on the weekends, they said they had gotten used to the schedule. And they said they felt fine, but their blood tests showed otherwise. So there's still elevation, and we still, after two nights of recovery, they're still elevated. So inflammation is elevated, stress markers are elevated. Um, so I think that was, so there is a dis- dissociation between the subjective feeling and what we actually see on the biological, um, on the biological um, domain. Um, so you sleep, for four, you sleep for five days, only four hours. And then you try to recover for a couple of nights. And when you look at the biological system, they don't recover. So catching up on the weekends, this will not work. If you're doing that, you're, you're not helping anything. You probably need at least three weeks, eight hours a night to catch up. But the truth is, Hawk told me we don't know how much sleep a person needs to get back to normal. Just a lot. And while we are sleep deprived, not only are the cognitive skills that I mentioned earlier diminished, but you also lose pain reception abilities, the ability to handle stress, and perhaps most crucially, your ability to handle your emotions, especially the dark ones and the angry ones. All of this is because, for reasons we still don't understand, sleep is crucial for prefrontal cortex functioning. Loss um, is associated with really significant metabolic declines in the prefrontal cortex, and that is a region that is really critical for self-monitoring and behavioral control and just for sort of slower, more deliberate cognitive um, processes. Listening to Hawk and Alcazai explain how most of the country, maybe most of the world, has entered a sort of stupor and how most of us aren't aware of how poorly we are performing compared to the fully rested version of ourselves. It reminded me of the lead crime hypothesis. You may have heard about this through the series Cosmos. They did a great animated explainer on the scientists who discovered it. I'll link that in the show notes. But in, in a nutshell, there's good evidence to suggest that the automobile emissions from leaded gasoline diminished people's intelligence and self-control for about two generations. As journalist Kevin Drum explained in an article a few years back, the children who ingested the most lead in the 1940s and 50s became the criminals from the 60s through the 1980s. In fact, he said, and this is a quote, gasoline lead may explain as much as 90% of the rise and fall of violent crime over the past half century, end quote. Crime rose from the 60s to the 80s, and then it suddenly 
dropped off in the 1990s. And according to the lead crime hypothesis, that's because leaded gasoline and paint were both outlawed in the late 1970s. And so the teens and adults of the 1990s were free of it growing up. Some research suggests that thanks to taking lead out of our lives, people's IQs are on average six points higher now. I asked Alkazai if maybe, maybe, we are living through something similar to the leaded days of the 20th century thanks to our heavily sleep-deprived society. I think it's a good analogy because just the society that we live in is um, sort of perpetuating that, right? So 24-hour shops where you can just go and get everything at any time, um, yeah, being on your phone, being getting emails, um, being able to get emails at any time of the day uh, from work. Um, it's just that we've, we've maybe in a way created a society where we have to be connected or where we can do everything at, at any time. Um, and so then sleep just doesn't seem that important um, because it seems as if we can function on, on less sleep. Um, and it seems as if you want to be successful, um, uh, that you have to sacrifice sleep in order to, to do that. Um, and so I think it is important that, um, that the research gets out there that it is just a lot more important um, than people think, that it really affects your productivity. So we know you can't focus when you are sleep deprived. So even though you might think you should stay up and, um, and check these emails or, or work longer, that um, the next day you will, you will suffer because of that. Um, and that it affects our emotion uh, regulation, that it affects our mental health. Um, and if we're not happy and, um, and content people, then again, our productivity will go down. Um, and so I think it is just important on so many levels. So I think it's important to, to, share that, uh, to share that research with people so that we can maybe change what is happening. Both Hawk and Alkazai say they worry about how sleep deprivation will affect the most sleep-deprived among us. Military, police, doctors, surgeons, caregivers, CEOs, presidents, and so on. The people making the most important and impactful decisions are often the people most under the stupefying spell of sleep loss. So, as a first step into investigating this... Hawk and Alkazai conducted a study this year using the protocol from the sleep debt study. They took a group of people and had them get much less sleep than they needed, and then they tested their responses to an implicit bias test. Then they let them get plenty of sleep for a few weeks and tested their biases again. After the break, we'll learn what they found, and we'll talk about implicit bias and how it's measured. All that after this.
I am always trying to make the most of my downtime. I want to learn something new and I want to do it in a way that isn't just for entertainment. It's going to enrich me. It's going to make me smarter. It's going to make me a better person. That's why I love The Great Courses Plus. We watch The Great Courses when your queue is as long as ours has gotten. You just can't help yourself but go, let's watch another episode of this show. And it's actually a lecture in a series in a course in The Great Courses Plus. They find the brightest minds from the top 1% of professors in America, and they make them accessible to all of us in their video lecture series. We get unlimited access to stream and download thousands of these videos in so many different topics, and there's always something new to learn. In fact, right now, I highly recommend a course called Introduction to Formal Logic. If you listen to the Logical Fallacy episodes on this podcast, this is the lecture for you. Sometimes the most confident people can be really the most ignorant. We've talked about it on the show with the Dunning-Kruger effect. That's why understanding logic is crucial. It helps us make better decisions, and it can be a great line of defense in any situation. I want you to experience The Great Courses Plus. You can do this too by going to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. That is a special URL that gives you an entire month of unlimited access to watch any of their lectures for free. So sign up today. Start your free month today at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. Support for today's show comes from Squarespace. Whatever your next big idea might be, and believe me, I understand what it's like to have ideas coming out of your ears and you're like, would this be good? Would this be interesting? Look, one of the coolest things you can do is just make a website to look at your idea outside of yourself, play around with it and see, is this something that is worth pursuing? Count on Squarespace to help you create an eye-catching online platform that will bring that idea to life. Whether you need a portfolio to showcase your work, a store to sell your products and services, a blog to sell your ideas, Squarespace gives you everything that you would need to look like an expert. And if you are an expert, well, you can make something incredible using Squarespace. You can even get a unique domain name, which strengthens your brand and makes it easier for visitors to find you. Plus, with Squarespace's award-winning templates, creating a beautiful website is a simple and intuitive process. You can add and arrange your content and features with the click of a mouse, and there's nothing to install, patch, or upgrade ever. Squarespace handles everything. And if you have a question, they have this award-winning customer support that's ready for your questions 24-7, every day of the week, every hour of the day, no matter how technical your problem no matter how trivial it may seem. Think of them as your own IT department. So make your next move and start your free trial at squarespace.com today. Enter the offer code SOSMART to get 10% off of your first purchase. Again, that's squarespace.com and the code is SOSMART. And now we return to our program. I'm David McCraney, and this is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. 
everything possible to improve policing to go right at implicit bias. Do you believe that police are implicitly biased against black people? Lester, I think implicit bias is a problem for everyone, not just police. I think, unfortunately, too many of us in our great country um, jump to conclusions about each other. And therefore, I think we need all of us to be asking hard questions about, you know, why am I feeling this way? But when it comes to policing, since it can have literally fatal consequences, I have said... That's Hillary Clinton in a September 2016 presidential debate discussing implicit bias. And to some people, this was the first time they'd ever heard of such a thing. A week of explainer articles followed her remarks, some taking scientific angles, but most taking political ones that either supported or opposed her suggestion that each of us harbors hidden biases toward products and services, entertainment and personalities, friends and family, and gender, people of color, people of different religions, different cultures, different socioeconomic statuses, and so on. Of course, the science on this is clear. Yes, we do. We have explicit attitudes that can be sampled with ease, and we each have automatic, unconscious, implicit attitudes that guide our behaviors without our knowing. The scientists from the first segment, Monica Hock and Anna Alkazai, they wondered if sleep deprivation might affect those biases in some way. Since we know sleep restriction causes people to have a hard time managing their emotions and other cognitions, it might be possible that it affects the regulation of implicit attitudes as well. To investigate this angle, to begin researching it, to start down a path of understanding, Alkazai, Hawk, and their colleagues used a popular tool in psychology known as the Implicit Association Test. Um, so the way it works is imagine you're sitting in front of a computer screen and you will see two categories in the left and the right-hand corner. So in one corner you see, you see good and in the other you see bad. Um, and then you're presented with words, things like wonderful, war, hatred, love, and then you're supposed to categorize these words. Um, and then you do that for a little while and then the categories will change. Um, and so now in one category you'll see Arab Muslims and in the other you see other people. And then you see names of people, so things like Philip, Matt, Yusuf, Mohammed, and then you're supposed to categorize those words. Um, and so this is fairly easy, right? So people can do this really quickly and, and really well. And then the categories will change again, um, and you'll see Arab Muslim and bad in one category, and other people and good. So now you have these two combined categories. And then you will see positive and negative words, um, and you will see names of people to categorize into these, into these two, um, two groups. Um, and it's not difficult, but we find that people are a lot slower when they have to categorize words into this combined category of Arab Muslim and good than Arab Muslim and bad. And this is just because we have learned to associate bad things with Arab Muslims, so those words don't, um, so that pairing won't be as easy as the pairing as Arab Muslim and bad. 
Um, and this isn't a test um, for racism or discrimination at all. So studies have shown that even members of these stigmatized groups, so let's say black individuals or gay individuals, they will still show preference um, for white people or straight people, maybe not quite as strongly, um, but it's just part of a function of what we're exposed to a lot of the time, right? So we see a lot of bad things associated with black people or Muslim people or gay people, um, then we will just end up making that association and that will just come automatically. And people are not very good at faking um, these tests. Um, so even when researchers have asked people to do their best to fake their performance, um, they're not really able to do it. So because this is on the, on the level of milliseconds, people are not very good at controlling these implicit associations. Um, and there is a website of these researchers who have developed the test. It's called Project Implicit. Um, and the listeners can go on it and can take a couple of these IATs of these implicit association tests. So um, there are ones for um, preferences for Arab Muslims or other people, but there are also ones for black individuals or white individuals. Um, uh, there are other ones for yeah, gay people or heterosexual people. So there are a lot of different ones um, that are out there and so um, that people can take if they want to check it out. To test the effects of sleep on such a test, Hawk and Akazai brought a group of people into a special facility where for three weeks, half slept eight hours a night and half slept four hours a night during the week, but attempted to catch up on that missed sleep on the weekends. A few months later, the same two groups came back and they switched roles. The proper sleepers became the deprived, the deprived became proper sleepers. You might be wondering how they ensured that people only slept for four hours. Well, the variables in this research were very tight. People went to sleep at 11 p.m. and in the rested condition, they woke up at 7 a.m. In the sleep-deprived condition, they went to sleep at 11 p.m. just the same, but they stayed awake until 3 a.m. And to make sure they stayed awake, a research assistant would play card games with them, board games. They would talk one-on-one. -on -one. They would watch television. All of it under the watch of a scientist and all of it recorded. Everything is controlled so that we are sure it's sleep that's doing all the changes and not like eating more or being exposed to light levels or exercise or something. So in the study, in each condition, after three weeks of rest or three weeks of staying up and trying to catch up on the weekends, the people in each group then took the IAT, one designed to measure their negative implicit bias toward Arab Muslims. Um, so what we found, what we expected to find was that we would see this implicit bias when they got the eight hours of sleep and that then we would see just an increase when they were sleep restricted. Um, but actually what we did find is that we didn't find any implicit bias when people were arrested. Um, but then when they were sleep deprived, they showed this um, moderate, moderately strong bias towards Arab Muslim, um, moderately negative strong bias, I should say. Initially, the test showed no implicit bias among the fully rested people. But a few months later, when they became chronically sleep-deprived, it emerged. As they write in their paper, it unmasked these responses in, quote, individuals who do not characteristically show this type of bias when normally rested, end quote. Somehow, and we don't know the how, a rested brain, one that gets eight hours of sleep every night can inhibit, it can prevent these biases from affecting our cognition and our behaviors. Now, this is, of course, just one study. 
and we're still at the beginning of understanding these phenomena, but since we do know that so much of our decision-making is influenced by factors unavailable to our conscious minds, the fact that sleep can influence the expression of emotions, the impact of our implicit attitudes, it's alarming. Especially when you add the fact that we so quickly acclimate to sleep deprivation and become unaware that there's a better version of us waiting on the other side of just a few weeks of quality rest. And so that was really surprising to us because most studies who do this um, implicit association test, whether on Arab Muslims or black people um, or other um, marginalized groups, um, they usually always find this implicit bias because it is just so prevalent. Um, so, you know, the question that pops in my head there is like, um, have we been studying sleep deprivation more than bias? You know, or, you know what I mean? Like is the... Right. The, okay. I was wondering if that's... Yeah, it's possible. It's, possible. <laughs> it's definitely possible. Um, we don't we don't really know. So this is the first study that we're aware of that has really looked at implicit biases and sleep. Um, and so we definitely need to do um, more research. don't want to go here that's totally understandable but you mentioned um interactions between the police and, and the public uh are probably or likely affected in some way or this study sort of leans toward that speculation if you want to if you could specifically just uh address that and then uh and, and however you feel like addressing it um so i think um we know that police officers are sleep deprived and, and overworked and they are in these really critical um, situations where they're worried for their own life um, and for someone else's life. And um, if they have just learned to make these associations um, that certain groups of people are more likely to shoot them or, um, or hurt someone else um, and there are so sleep deprived, then it could impact the decisions that they make. And we don't know that for sure. I haven't studied that in particular, um, but it would be definitely worth exploring further. And these are not deliberate decisions that they make. I think that's important to, to keep in mind that this doesn't necessarily mean that these people are making deliberately bad decisions. It's just sort of automatic um, and that they're not able to control these um, as well because the prefrontal cortex isn't able to to work as well when we are so sleep deprived. Our friends at the Rationally Speaking podcast did an episode recently about the implicit association test and some of its criticisms. The researchers in this episode are confident that the test is reliable, but it is worth your time to check out what others have to say about it. It's a ongoing investigation. It's a test that's being constantly refined. And so I linked that episode in the show notes for this episode over at youarenotsosmart.com. That is it for this episode of the You're Not So Smart podcast. To find links to everything we talked about in this episode, head to youarenotsosmart.com. 
where you can also find transcripts, previous episodes, cookie recipes, and more. Yes, we have almost 100 cookie recipes. Previous episodes are also available on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. So subscribe to one of those things. If you want to support the show, head to patreon.com slash you are not so smart. Just $1 a month will get you this show with zero ads and every once in a while extra shows and other neat stuff. You Are Not So Smart is part of the Boing Boing family of podcasts. So head to boingboingpodcasts.com for more great podcasts just like this one. And you can follow the show on Twitter at NotSmartBlog. I'm at David McCraney. On Facebook, it's just You Are Not So Smart. And on YouTube, it's also You Are Not So Smart. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. And all the background music in this episode came from Kevin McLeod. You can find his stuff at Incompetech.com.